several years ago, Oprah Winfrey hosted a web event entitled A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. The global webcast highlighted the wisdom of renowned New Age spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle. During one of the segments, Oprah interviews a woman by the name of Margaret about what she learned from Tolle's newest book, A New Earth. Margaret begins, quote, I had always tried to find a, a deeper inner connection with the purpose that Christ had here on earth. And all of my life, I thought it was just for him to die on the cross for my sins. But I now recognize that Jesus actually taught me Christ consciousness. That to be fully human is to be Christ-like. Oprah chimed in. Yes, I'm Christian too. And I got that a long time ago. Up until then, I thought Jesus came, died on the cross, that Jesus' being here was about his death and dying on the cross. When it really was about him coming to show us how to do it, how to be, to show us the Christ consciousness that he had and that that consciousness abides with all of us. That's what I got. That's what I got. What do you got? What do you think was Christ's purpose? Why did Jesus Christ come to earth? Have Christians gotten it wrong all these years? Have we been too cross-centric? Was Christ's death minimal? His time on earth really about showing us how to be, how to do. Or was his death the main event? Because those are important questions. Those are life-altering questions. And we need to answer them. But we do so not by looking to other authors or to our own opinions. We need to answer those questions by going to original sources. All right. And so we turn this morning to God's very word the source of truth, to tell us about Jesus's life and his death and its effects on us. So if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And this morning we're looking at verses 45 through 56 together. Matthew 27 verses 45 through 56. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page, I believe, 834. 834. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read, that you can easily understand, take that Bible under that chair home as your own Bible, as a gift from us to you. We would love nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible and it's not one under the chair in front of you or the chair you're sitting in, just raise your hand. Somebody will gladly grab you a Bible and bring it to you. You're going to need a Bible. 
we mean for the sermons here at Temple Hills Baptist Church to actually come out of God's word. You need to see where I get what I'm saying so that you're not, again, trusting in other authors or man's opinions, but placing your trust in God. Matthew chapter 27. This morning we'll look at verses 47 through 56 together as we continue our study through Matthew. We read, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirits. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Hmm. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. I think it's safe to say that Matthew has a slightly different point of view than Oprah. He is not unclear about why Jesus Christ came. He presents without reservation a graphic depiction of Jesus' death and the events surrounding it. We mentioned this before, but Matthew's gospel spends roughly 40% of the entire book focusing just on Jesus' final week on earth. He means to highlight that Jesus' mission was to come, to die, and to die for a purpose, mainly to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. And that's something of the main idea of this passage, of this sermon. The main idea, Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Amen. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. If you look at this passage, I think you see that it's broken up pretty clearly into two parts. In verses 45 through 50 detail Jesus' death, and verses 51 through 56 detail some of the after effects of Jesus' death. Right, I think you see that pretty clear, right? 45 through 50 talk about Jesus dying on the cross, and then 51 through 56 talk about what happens after Jesus' death. And so we're just going to follow the natural flow of the text this morning and hang our thoughts around two points, two headings as we walk through this passage. Number one, we'll look at what Jesus' death involved. And number two, 
We'll look at what Jesus' death produces. Two points. What Jesus' death involved, verses 45 through 50. And number two, what Jesus' death produces. We said it in verses 51 through 56. Number one, what Jesus' death involved. We come to this passage finding perhaps the single most well-known image. One that we've all seen and had impressed in our minds in some way. Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. It may seem strange that Matthew would include such a vivid portrayal of Jesus in this way. Especially since early on in the book, Matthew records such lofty claims about Jesus. Identifying him as the promised son of David. The long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come and save his people from their sins. But now we find this same Jesus hanging on the cross, reserved for the worst of criminals outside the Jerusalem gates. His own people, the Jews, have rejected him, declaring as blasphemous his claims to be the very son of God, worthy of death. They've arrested Jesus and surrendered him to the Roman authorities to be executed, claiming that his pronouncement of King of the Jews poses a threat to Rome's rule, to Caesar himself. The Roman governor, Pilate, cowered and consented to the Jews' demands, delivering Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be put to death. They scorched him and beat him. They spit on him and mocked him. And finally, they crucified him. You've got some image of that in your mind, don't you? The crucified Jesus has been well represented but far less represented that Matthew wants us to see is what accompanied Jesus' hanging on the cross. What's not shown in the pictures or in the movies, what you can't visualize is what Matthew shows us in verse 45. That while Jesus is hanging on the cross, there is complete darkness over all the land. It's a strange occurrence because it's completely dark at the time of day when it should be the brightest. Uh, this darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour there in verse 45 is recorded in, in the Jewish accounting of time. It translates to 12 o'clock noon to 3 p.m. It's during this time of the day that the sun is usually at its highest point in the sky. It's at this time of the day when the sun's UV rays usually shine the strongest. And yet here, there's utter darkness. Were this daytime darkness a standalone occurrence, we might be left to come to our own conclusions regarding its cause. Uh, there was some eclipse because of atmospheric conditions that caused it. Or there must have been some massive fire in the forest of Jerusalem that caused smoke to billow up into the sky and, and so fog it that it seemed like it was all dark. Or aliens. Aliens hovered over the sky with their spacecraft and temporarily dimmed the stratosphere. The human mind can create all kinds of causes and conditions if left to itself. Yeah. But thank God we are not left to ourselves. God gives us words to help us. The darkness over the land of Israel doesn't just occur out of nowhere with no explanation. We need to look at the context and what surrounds this darkness. This darkness 
is connected with the death of Jesus on the cross. Amen. It is a sign, a symbol of God's judgment. That's how darkness is often portrayed in the Bible. I mean, remember back in the book of Exodus when God judged the land of Egypt with plague after plague after plague. One of the most severe plagues was the, was the ninth plague, where God covered the land with total darkness for three days. A darkness so severe that Exodus tells us the people could feel it. Significant was that this darkness preceded the tenth and final plague. God striking the firstborn sons of Egypt, resulting in the rescue of his people. Here, the darkness lasts not for three days, but for three hours. And it precedes God striking his firstborn son, Jesus Christ. Firstborn, not in the sense of being created, but being preeminent. A striking that, again, would result in the rescue of God's people. This darkness was God judging his son. It was God turning his face away from his son. I mean, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Looking back throughout the Bible, then God's presence, God's nearness, God's favor is described as God's shining the light of his face upon his people. I mean, think of the famous and often quoted blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you and give you peace. Uh, think, think of David's question and request in Psalm chapter 4. Verse 6, David says that there are many who say, who will show us some good? Mm. David says, Lord, lift up the light of your face yes. upon us. Yes. Or think of the psalmist in, in Psalm chapter 67, verse 1. Uh, the psalmist pleads, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Yes. God's special favor to his special people throughout the Bible is stated as his shining his face on them. Even God's common favor is communicated in terms of God shining on people. I mean, remember earlier in this book, in chapter 5, Jesus Christ himself speaks of God's beneficence, his, his common goodness and his common grace to all people. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that God causes his, his son to, to shine on the good and the evil, on the just and the unjust. But here on the cross, God withholds even his common grace from his son. There is none of God's favor, none of God's light. There is only utter darkness. This darkness is then what drives the distressed cry of desolation from the cross. As Jesus Christ calls out, he screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's meant to shock us. To arrest us. 
Because what Matthew's been so careful to show us in these last couple of passages is the stunning silence of Jesus. When his disciples deserted him in the Garden of Gethsemane at his arrest, when chapter 26, verse 56 says, they all left him and fled, Jesus didn't cry out, where y'all going? This is what I need you the most, friend. When the powerful Pontius Pilate questioned him, asking if he had no answer to rebut all the charges that the chief priests and the elders made against him, Jesus didn't say a word. So that we read in chapter 27, verse 14, that the governor was greatly amazed at Jesus's silence as he hung on the cross and the soldiers mocked him. The religious leaders continued to insult him. The passers-by wagged their heads and derided him. And even the two robbers on either side ridiculed him. Jesus did not say a peep. But when the father came up against him, this man's mouth can no longer remain muted. He shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the, the pain from the beatings was manageable. The humiliation from the mockery was tolerable. But the abandonment by the father is unbearable. My God, why have you forsaken me? It is not a question of confusion or doubt. All right. Jesus is not losing faith in God or in his purpose. He's not looking for answers as to what's going on. No, it's a cry confirming the real separation and dread that Jesus experienced. This cry is a direct quotation of Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, where David calls out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? David only felt forsaken. Only felt as if God was distant from him. So severe was his suffering. But Jesus Christ, the true and better David, the ultimate innocent sufferer, really was forsaken. I mean, notice here, for the first time in the book of Matthew, Jesus addresses God not as Father, but as my God. There's a real separation in a sense here, a real forsakenness. But why? Why has Jesus been forsaken? It was for our sins. What's happening here on the cross, what no picture can adequately capture and and that other passages fill in for us, is that God is unleashing on Jesus all his wrath against our sins. He is judging Jesus in the place of all his people. Jesus here is absorbing the full cup of fury that he earlier wanted to bypass in the garden. He, the sinless one, is suffering on the cross for the sins of all those who trust in him. Romans chapter 25, or chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, Romans 3, 25 through 26, tell us that God, in his forbearance, 
passed over the former sins of his people. At the time, he did not judge Noah or Abraham or Job or Jacob or David or Deborah or Esther as their sins deserved. They all deserve hell for their sins, as we all do. But God passed over their sins, Romans 3 tells us. But God had to judge sin. He couldn't just let sinners go scotch-free because he is a just judge. So Romans 3 says that God passed over former sins until this very moment we read about here in Matthew. When he put forward his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus willingly submitted himself to bear the full weight, the full wrath of all the sins of all the people that God would save throughout all eternity. Amen. Millions of people. Perhaps billions of people. And each person with perhaps millions or billions of individual sins in word and thought and deed accumulated over the span of a lifetime. And God here is judging every single one of them in Christ. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says that here on the cross, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. The holy God can't look on sin. He hates sin. He judges sin. Here, he judges his son who's become sin for us. He bore our sins and our griefs and here is bearing our pain and our punishment for hour upon hour from God. And now it's important here that we're careful theologically. We need to read with some theological restraints because we can read this passage and come to the conclusion that, that here the Trinity was broken. As the father forsook the son as God judged Jesus here. But the essential and eternal unity between the father, son, and spirit has never and will never be broken. Amen. God is one God Amen. who eternally exists in three persons, father, son, and spirit. And those three persons eternally exist in that one Godhead indivisibly. To break apart the Trinity is to break apart God, and God cannot be broken. Mm. Well, there is a, a real sense that Jesus, God the Son incarnate, endured separation from the Father. It's only as he endured the sins of mankind that separate us from God. It's never that his divine nature is, is severed from the Father or the Spirit's divine nature. What it is here is a very real forsakenness by God the Father. As God the Son, as a human, suffers for the sins of humanity and feels the wrath of God totally upon him. And he bears the full weight of that wrath. We can't completely grasp it. But neither must we minimize this real forsakenness and separation that Jesus Christ endured for us. 
When you look here in verses 47 through 49, they, they show something still of the hard-heartedness and the blindness of men. They're thinking that Jesus calls upon Elijah instead of upon God. And still mocking and insulting him as they give him sour wine to drink. They have missed what the Messiah is doing, even for them, if they would but believe. Finally, verse 50 tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. Why now? Why does he die now? Well, because his work was finished. He'd endured all the wrath that was needed to be endured. He'd atoned for all the sins that needed to be atoned for. And now he suffered the curse of death in the place of all who deserve death's penalty or sin's penalty of death. For instance, we stare upon this opening scene here of all that Jesus Christ's death involved. As you see it, I hope you come away struck by two things. First, how incredibly deep and dark our sins are. There are no white sins, no little sins, no small sins, no God understands sins. They are all deplorable. Racism and greed and gluttony and apathy and lack of empathy and pride and sexual immorality and selfishness and slander and disrespect of parents and discontentment and envy and lying. Every single one of them utterly offends a pure and a perfect God. Amen. They are so wretched. Every single sin is so wretched that they turn God's forever shining face of grace and favor and delight. They turn God's forever shining face dark on his son as he bore our sins on the cross. Our sins are so deep that nothing less than Jesus' death could remedy them. No amount of money we could make would make up for how indebted our sins put us with God. As our Muslim friends sadly believe, no amount of good works we could possibly fathom doing could ever equal out or balance our bad works or satisfy God's demands for justice. Jesus had to die for us to be forgiven. Amen. Our sins are that deep. But second, notice in this passage how much deeper God's love for us is. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not leave us to die for ourselves. He did not leave us to suffer the consequence for our sins alone. Amazing love for sinners like us led God to pour out his wrath on his beloved son. Jesus' amazing love for us led him to endure the wrath of God, to despise the shame of the cross and die so that we might live. Friends, if you're here this morning and the weight of your sins or the intensity of your temptations, 
or the difficulties and the disappointments of life or the, the griefs and burdens that you are bearing. If, if all those things are adding up and inviting you to begin to believe that God does not love you, look here at the cross and see all that Christ's death involved for you. If the first half of this text shows us all that Christ's death involved, the second half of this text shows us all that Christ's death produces. Second point, what Jesus' death produces. I think we see it produces four things in this text. First, Jesus' death produces access to God. Access to God. Look with me at verse 51. We read, and behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And Matthew means for us to pay attention to what happens after Jesus dies. He says, behold, look here. Turn aside and see these events. These are really important. And the first thing he points us to is a piece of fabric, a curtain. But this is not any curtain. All right. It is the 42 foot long, six foot wide curtain in the temple. The curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The holy of holies. In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Over the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat where God's presence dwelt. Only the high priest was allowed to, to come into this most holy place, and he only one time a year, and he had to bring with him a blood sacrifice to make up for his own sins and the sins of the people. Otherwise, every other 364 days of the year, this area was completely cut off to all the people. Nobody was holy enough. Nobody pure enough. To come behind this curtain into the most holy place where the most holy God dwells. Mm. That's the problem with our sin, you see. It separates us from God. It cuts us off from him. In the first temple, the Garden of Eden, where the holy God dwelled in the midst of his people, Adam and Eve sin cut them off from God's presence. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to turn with me or scroll with me to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 26 and 27 with me. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, it's on page 3. Crazy. Chapter 3 on page 3. Genesis 3, verses 26 and 27. Adam and Eve have sinned by disobeying God and eating of the forbidden fruit. And verse 26 tells us. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. God kicked Adam out from his presence in the garden and placed cherubim, angels at the entrance to protect it. As one of my daughter's children's books uh, put it, uh, the angels were like a big keep out sign. God saying, because of your sin, you can't come in. 
It's the same thing when God gives instructions to build the tabernacle and later the temple. As we talked about a moment ago, God's presence dwelled in the most holy place, the place separated by a curtain. If you still got your Bibles open, flip with me to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26, and look with me at verses 31 through 33. It's on page 67 of the Bibles under the chairs. Exodus 26, 31 through 33. God has given Moses instructions about the tabernacle and all this kind of arrangements. And he tells Moses in, in, in verse 31, and you shall make a, a veil or a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. The veil. The curtain separates people from God's dwelling place. And did you notice the intentional detail yeah. about the curtain in verse 32? Yeah. What God said should be woven into, should be stitched into the curtain? Mm -hmm. Cherubim. Mm -hmm. Angels. When the people walked up to the temple and walked inside and saw this giant curtain with the images of the cherubim of the angels on them, guarding this most holy place from the most unholy of people, it was meant to send their minds back to the garden, back to Genesis 3, 26 through 27, where the angels, the cherubim, guarded the Garden of Eden, cutting people off from God's presence. The curtain stitched with angels was another big keep outside. God saying, because of your sin, you can't come in. Friends, that is the echo that all humanity, from Adam down throughout all the ages, has heard from God. Because of your sin, you cannot come into my presence. So you see why it's so significant then that when Jesus dies, the first thing that Matthew points to is a piece of cloth. All right. The first thing that Matthew points to is a curtain. The curtain that separated people from God is ripped up by God. Hallelujah. You see there, it's ripped from the top to the bottom. God did the work. This is heaven's response to Jesus' death. The Father is proclaiming that access into his presence is now open to all through a new and a living way, namely through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who walked into the most holy place, not bringing the blood of bulls and goats, but bringing his own blood, shedding his own blood and saying that anyone who comes behind me and trusts in my work on the cross can enter into the same access and call this God your father just as he's mine. Oh, it is so gracious, the Lord. The curtain was ripped up. The sins that once separated us from God have been totally paid by Jesus. He paid it all. He don't have to pay nothing else. All the fabric is done. All the veil is lifted. There's no cherubim cutting us off. There's the sun saying, come on in. Jesus' death produces access to God. The second thing we see in this 
passage that Jesus' death produces is that Jesus' death produces resurrection life. Hmm. Verses 52 and 53 say that not only was the curtain torn in two at Christ's death, but it was followed by a great earthquake where the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and walked in the city of Jerusalem and appeared to many. Jesus' death brings people out of the grave. All right. It's something of a preview of what he would do in just three days. What we celebrate today and we'll celebrate again next Sunday and celebrate every Sunday that Jesus Christ rose up from the grave. Yes, yes he died, but he got up from the dead. Yes. His death defeated death. Jesus took on our sins and conquered sin. He reversed the curse of sin, the primary penalty being death. So that when Jesus died, some of the saints' bodies bounced up out of the tomb. What a sight, right, Dad? I mean, dead bodies bounced up out the tomb when Jesus laid down his life. Who were these saints? The, the, the saints' bodies were raised. Who, who were these saints? Well, they, they were likely those who, who died before Jesus came. They looked for the coming Messiah. They believed that he was coming one day to save them. But they died not seeing that ever fulfilled. Oh, but they did not die in vain. Because he came and he died to save them, to give them life and give them life everlasting. And when he rose up, their resurrected bodies went out into the city showing that trust in God never disappoints. Showing that not only does Jesus rise, but all who are united with him in faith, all the saints throughout all the ages, their bodies will rise up too. Chris, Nicole, through faith in Christ, your mother will rise up again from the grave. Jed and Kev, through faith in Christ, your sister Kim will rise up again from the grave. Through faith in Christ, our brother Curtis's body will rise up again from the grave. What a comfort. Jesus' death beat death and produces resurrected bodies. Yes. Resurrection life. Third thing we see that this text shows us that Jesus' death produces is transformed hearts. Jesus' death produces transformed hearts. And in verse 54, we see a group totally different from the saints in verses 52 and 53 who longed for Jesus. In verse 54, we see the soldiers who loathed Jesus. I mean, these were the people who earlier in the chapter tortured and toyed with Jesus. These are the ones who stripped him of his clothes and, and put a scarlet robe on him, who twisted a, a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. And these are the ones who spit on him and hit him on the head again and again and again, who, who gave him bitter wine to drink and who divided his garments. These are the ones who nailed Jesus Christ on the cross and hung him up to die. How do we know that the soldiers in verse 54 are the same as the soldiers earlier mentioned? Well, notice verse 54 says this centurion, the leader of this, of this troop, and these soldiers who were with him, or keeping watch over Jesus. And now, now lift your eyes up a bit, a few verses back to verse 36. 
and see what's said of the soldiers who crucified Jesus and who did all the previous things to him. They finally, after they finished everything, they sat down and kept watch over him. And this group in verse 54 is the same detachment of soldiers keeping watch over the Jesus that they just wailed on and that they just wickedly tormented. These same uh, troops of soldiers who, who thought Jesus was a nobody. Well, their attitudes have been transformed post Jesus' death. Verse 54 says that, that when this centurion and these soldiers saw the earthquake and the events surrounding it that took place, when they saw the way Jesus died, how he yielded up his life, how he did not cower, but he stood there as a conquering king. When they saw the way this man died, they saw it and they were filled with awe and could only come to one conclusion. Truly, this man was who he said he was, who everyone else didn't think he was. Truly, he was the son of God. Just moments before, they thought he was the scum of the earth. After his death, he's the son of God. It's the confession Matthew has been driving us towards all along in the book. It's the confession that God the Father gave early in the book when Jesus Christ came up out of the baptismal waters and God the Father proclaimed, this is my beloved son. It's the confession that Jesus Christ got out of Peter when he asked Jesus, oh, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John, Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed these things to you, Peter, but my father from heaven has revealed them to you. It's a confession overall, however, that the Jews have refused to make about Jesus in this book. I mean, remember the passages last week. Some of their last words to Jesus are words of scorn and ridicule. Look at chapter 57, verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Or verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. But here we find the unlikeliest of candidates. Roman soldiers. Gentiles. Who just crucified Jesus. Now standing at the foot of the cross. Having looked at how Jesus died and what happened after it. Agreeing with God. Making the same confession as Peter, truly this was the Son of God. It was no use holding on to their prior conceptions of Jesus. They could not do that after seeing what just happened. After seeing how this man died, the events that surrounded his death. He wasn't just the man. He must be the Son of God. Jesus' death transformed their hearts. A little over 20 years ago now, I was uh, at a club in D.C. with one of my cousins and, and, a, and a good friend of ours, uh, celebrating my 19th birthday. I was 19 and very much not a Christian and very much celebrating and living like I was not a Christian. Anyway, we, we were at this club and midway through our time there, uh, a woman comes into the, into the club, runs into the club screaming, 
that they're there shooting and not knowing if the person was coming in to shoot or what was going on. Everyone floods outside the club. Outside the club, there's a car and it's, it's parked with all these doors open, riddled with bullets. In the driver's side, on the back seat, a man was slumped out of his car and shot to death. Out near the, the front seat passenger side, a, a man was outside on the ground, blood pouring out of his mouth and his body convulsing rapidly. <clears throat> and another man, the, the driver presumably, was, was around over on the passenger side, never forget, shouting to his friend who was dying at, at the top of his lungs over and over and over again, Dog, you can't die. We got too many more women to sleep with. In far more graphic terms than that. In my dead and soul and heart, and probably drunken stupor, I remember even in that moment being struck that he was this man witnessing his friend's death. And his seeming only desire, his prevailing desire, was that somehow his friend could find the power to live so that they could return to living life on their former terms so they could keep on doing what they had been doing. His death didn't affect him at all. Didn't change him at all. It struck me, but only momentarily. Because from that day, I lived roughly seven years of my own life still as an out and out rebel against the Lord. Witnessing this man's friend's death didn't affect me or change me at all either. I went back to living life just as I lived before. It wasn't, around, it wasn't until around this time, spring, March, April 2009, that the Lord transformed my heart by witnessing another death. The death recorded here in Matthew. The death that the soldiers saw the death of Jesus Christ for me. And I'm so thankful, so grateful to God that he did. Heaven opened up my eyes and my hearts and revealed Jesus' death for me. Friends, don't look upon the death of Christ here and be like the man's friend I spoke about. Or be like I was at, at 19, Seeing this dramatic death, but continuing to live like it doesn't matter. You must not do that with Jesus's death. Be like this centurion and these soldiers. Look upon Jesus's death and drop all your denials of him. Look at Jesus's death and drop all your rebellion against him. Drop all your plans this afternoon or this evening or this week to do things that you know would displease him. Drop all your unbelief as you look upon Jesus and believe. Friends, hmm. let the Lord have his way with you this morning through this text. Look upon Jesus' death on the cross for you and be transformed. Friends, if you're here and you need to, to make the right confession about Jesus Christ for the first time in your life, if you need to confess that truly this man is the son of God and to live like he is your king, you can do that now even in the silence of your own heart. Yes. Yes. Tell him you trust him. Yes. Tell him you're tired of rebellion against him. Yes. 
Tell him you want to bow your knee, your life. You want to give everything over to him because he gave everything. He died for you. Mm. Tell him you believe him. And after service, come talk to me at the door. Talk to someone else around you. We love to tell you more about what it looks like to follow this Jesus who died and was risen again for you. I'll stand at that door for as long as I need to. Don't be embarrassed. Don't keep on living as if this death doesn't matter. Let it rip out of you an old heart and give you a new heart to believe in Christ. The death of Jesus Christ produces transformed hearts. And lastly, and very briefly, we see that Jesus' death produces witnesses. All right. The, the Roman soldiers were certainly witnesses going forward of what happened with Jesus on the cross. But verses 55 and 56 give even more witnesses, telling us that many women were there at the cross, looking on from a distance, witnessing Jesus' death. They'd been with Jesus all along, the text tells us, ministering to him throughout his ministry. We've said this before, uh, sisters, women were a vital part of Jesus' ministry. Sisters, you are even now a vital part of Jesus's ministry. Amen. Back in this time in the first century, women were looked down upon as, as second class citizens, not highly regarded in Jewish society. But here they are esteemed as being with Jesus until the very end, even as his 12 disciples had long ago bailed out on them. They saw Jesus die the most horrible of deaths. And also saw all the things that happened after his death here. And they would go on to see even greater things. As we'll see next week, they'll first see the resurrected Christ. They'll be the first ones to tell others that this Jesus who really died, we saw him. Oh, he is really alive. We saw him. The death of Christ and his subsequent resurrection is still producing witnesses from people whom the world looks down on. Us, Christians. Not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born of noble birth. But God has chosen what is weak in the yes. world. Yes. Women then, and, and seemingly wimpy Christians now, to shame the strong. And to bear witness to the world about the one who left the power throne of heaven, powerful throne of heaven, and became weak. Who bled and died on the cross for us and rose again that we could be forgiven of every single one of our sins and reconciled to God. That's what Jesus came to do. And praise God that he did. Amen. May we never lose sight of why Jesus Christ came to die for us. And let us never lose sight of the amazing effects that Jesus Christ's death continues to produce. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. And we pray that in him, in Jesus Christ, we would have new life. We would know the full reconciliation that he brings, that we would rejoice in Christ's death, and that we would give our lives to telling others 
Jesus who loved us, who laid down his life for us, and who lives even now to make us more united in hope, love, and faithfulness, and more eager witnesses for him. We pray all this in Jesus' name.